From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, Tanya James was just nominated for the National Book Award for her book, Loot. Turns out her writing philosophy aligns very closely with Nerdette's. I mainly let delight be my guide, like when I was having fun. But first, it's our chance to sit back and relax with two excellent humans. With us this week, we have a comedian and writer and the host of the Glamorous Trash Podcast, Chelsea Devantes. Chelsea, hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. Also, here is freelance podcast guru, Christina Lopez. (laughs) Christina, welcome back. Hello. Okay, so this week, the United States Senate did away with their dress code. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said this week, senators can wear whatever they want to work. Staffers do still have to wear like business attire. Um, In general, it seems like Republicans are pretty upset. Of course, some Democrats are too. But I mean, Democrats are also like wearing sweatpants. So I don't know. Here we are. I think this is a really interesting story. Chelsea, what do you think? I'm I have to say I'm upset, but for reasons that that don't fully make sense even to me, which is that it took until 2019 till they even allowed women to wear sleeveless dresses. True. And now they're like, oh, um, one dude wears wore sweatpants and he won't stop. Uh, no dress code. <laughs> That is a really, really good point. I don't know. I mean, I'm conflicted because it's like, you know, since the pandemic, my my own personal dress code has definitely gotten a lot more lax. But also I kind of feel like we should be able to expect a certain level of decorum from like elected officials. Christina, am I totally unreasonable in assuming that these days? <laughs> I mean, I think that's a little a ridiculous, no offense to expect like a certain <laughs> level of decorum from the Senate these days at all. I know, I know, um, so I think I the external is just matching the internal right now. That's what's happening. <laughs> And the wild thing is like, never mind, like sleeveless dresses. Women couldn't even wear pants in the Senate until 1993. So yeah, yeah. I think this is just sort of a matching of like where we are moving as a society, because you've seen in the tech industry, even professionally, Mark Zuckerberg was giving speeches in a hoodie. So I think this is just the pandemic accelerating some of that laxness into more of the governmental, you know, federal forums that are a little bit more straight laced. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, when is the last time you wore hard pants, Christina? <laughs> um, Not I still to put you like on the to, spot here. I, I do still like to dress like nice as a person just for my own that's personal nice. preferences. And maybe this is yeah. just uh, flexing, a widening a window of like how people can show up. Because we know that there are also a lot of people who are running for public office that don't come from means these days, who talked mm. about how hard it is to even get an apartment in D.C., let alone yeah. being able to afford professional clothes. You know, like Payless isn't around anymore. Nobody's getting those BOGOs. So <laughs> we have to find a way that like also makes it a accessible for people who are of the people to be able to be Mm. in these positions and be able to participate in the government. So maybe this is another way, another insight for people to engage in this kind of civic duty. That's beautiful. I love that. I mean, Chelsea, what do you like? Are you how often are you dressing up in this year of our Lord 2023? You know, I have two modes. It's pajamas mm. and Met Gala. And I just kind <laughs> of go it. between the two. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, here's the thing. If I was in the Senate, I would be rejoicing. I'd be like, thank God, because I, I really don't want to put on clothes that constrict me in any way, emotionally sure. or physically. However, <laughs> thinking about the Senate, I I agree in that they they 
in order for us to look at them as if they are doing some sort of respectable job, I, like I think anything that right. takes away from the idea that they deserve our respect, our respect yes. is helpful right now. But I just can't help but think of all the other things they haven't changed. Like there was not a women's bathroom in the building. <laughs> Women couldn't join the pool at like the Senate gym. And so, yeah. So when I see things like, oh, the dress code has fallen, it's like, oh my God, you guys have your priorities wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So also this week, the Washington Post had a story all about how the paper check is going to die any day now, which I mean, I was trying to remember the last time I wrote a paper check and I think it was to a uh, like 60 year old yoga instructor last year. Um, but I was trying to think of like what else I even write paper checks for. Does either like, when is the last time you wrote one Chelsea? Well, first off 60 year old yoga teacher. Okay. Brag. Um, <laughs> she's crushing it. Um, she's awesome. She's awesome. Yes. I, I, it's been years and years and years. And I, I have to say, though, if checks are dead, how are we going to know, like, who's really into Disneyland or floral <laughs> patterns or goofy? Like, remember when you could, like, put images on your check and it was, like, yes. your financial personality? I will miss that. Oh, my God. That is so funny to remember. Christina, do you have any idea when the last time is that you wrote a check for something? Yeah. Uh, last month when I paid my rent, uh, my, my landlord wow. still takes paper checks. So I still oh like write gosh. out a check every single month to my landlord. So I have another one wow. due in, a, in two weeks. That's so funny because rent, I mean, that's not nothing. Even if I write like a $50 check or something, I have to constantly be like, okay, Greta, there's less money in my checking account than I think there is. Like, I don't know how people did it before with just the ledgers and everything. That just blows my mind. They would spend their time balancing checkbooks I by know. hand. Like, or like that was always like a plot point in sitcoms about balance checking. <laughs> that you don't see anymore yes. because nobody yes. nobody does it. <laughs> and now they spend their time picking which emoji to put in the Venmo transaction um, and make it public so people know that like this was a date. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. So Christina, what's another piece of like pre-internet life that you are ready to say goodbye to? Well, it's not necessarily pre-internet life, but it is sure. just kind of like a technology that like we have so many better ways to verify identity. Mm. I'm surprised that we're still using CAPTCHA, which is like the thing that you like type in blurry <laughs> words oh to God. try to decipher that and, you know, verify that you're a human or tap on these blurry <laughs> pictures of like partial bicycles and in the square and like try to verify that you're a human that way. And it's I almost always get it wrong. There's yeah. always a bicycle that I forget to check off. And know, there's like a <laughs> tiny corner of a staircase or whatever. And exactly. And then I just like, I'm so frustrated. I'm like, you have all of my DNA now. Why don't you just have a better system of verifying <laughs> oh me for these websites? God. I'm just trying to pay my light bill. Oh my God, Christina, that's amazing. I was going to say fax machines, but I actually hate CAPTCHA more. I have to say though, I just, my vision is just bad enough that finally I was like, fuck it. I'm going to do the audio version and it's way, way better. It's You're so right. much easier. But so it's always more it's, it's always more Hot words tip. than I ever anticipate it being. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I always think it's yes. gonna be like three words and it's like, oh, it's <laughs> half of, you know, Noam Chomsky. Oh, like I'm like, what? <laughs> oh my god. So Chelsea, what do you think? What's your like tech thing that you would love to see just disappear? Well, you know, all I can think of right now is something that is disappearing and I don't want it to, mm. um, which is Us Weekly and People magazines. Mm. Like they're no. just, 
They're so obsolete and I still have a subscription to Us Weekly. Um, I'm trying to keep the industry alive. And now those magazines literally print celebrities' own Instagram photos. Yeah. So, so they'll be like, celebrities, they're just like us, which used to be like a paparazzi crouched For under sure. someone's car, finding a woman crying. And like, it's like, Nicole Kidman's crying. Um, now it's like, Chrissy Teigen took a selfie dancing in her living room and then they print it as a full page picture. That's amazing. I think they so, also stopped doing like who wore it best because it was too mean. And now they just like have rebranded it as like twinsies. Yes, they have. Except, okay, so they were like twinsies, twinsies, you guys. And my last issue, they brought back who, like who wore it best, but mm. like the, but like took the polls away. So they're like, who wore what? it best, but they won't There's tell no you the answer. percentages. They don't, they're like, they just posing the question and letting They're just decide. posing the question. They're like, you guys think about it to yourself. Oh my God. Okay, Christina, I'm going to put you on the spot. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? Okay. The uh, the answer is kind of sometimes a lot just because of like, you know. Uh, God damn it. Okay, hold on. Wait, let me defend myself. Um, I think about the cl- decline of a society, you know, uh, sure, in, in our sure. current and like that, you know, what happened there that this like big thing collapsed and what led mm-hmm. to that. And every time something happens in modern American politics, I'm like, is this the path? Because, you know, that's what that is For the sure. common refrain we're hearing right now is that like this totally. is a dec- decaying capitalistic, you know, system. And so like, how did it happen there and other sort of empires? But those are the, the, the Roman one is the one that we know best because that's what we're taught in sort of these kind of Eurocentric history narratives in school. For sure. Yeah. So yeah, to provide context for this random question, for those of you who have not seen this content on the internet, on TikTok over the last week or so, many women have been asking many men how often they think about the Roman empire. And a lot of dudes are saying like every single day, like very like, oh yeah, every day which I just find fascinating on a number of levels. Um, Chelsea, what is something that you think about like surprisingly a lot? Oh, oh my gosh. Definitely not the Roman empire. Um, Same. When you, when you asked that question, I thought of a day in my life when two separate men quoted the speed of light to me. And they were totally different situations. Like in one situation, I like I needed a new car and I was looking at cars and somehow he ended up weaving that in. (laughs) And then like and then a comedian quoted it to me. And in that day, I was like, our brains are just different. Like, I don't know what you dudes are up to, but like. And they both knew it. They, I, I don't, I can't even remember it. They were both like, it's 1.2, blah, blah, blah. I was like, how did you? That's amazing. You memorized like seven numbers. Yeah. 299,792,458 meters per second. I had to Google it. Yeah. That's, <laughs> like, why would you have that in your brain? I do have to say this. We took a trip down, uh, down to Mexico to, to, celebrate my stepdad's birthday and Mm -hmm. for some reason my mom and my stepdad had they they told me they had this airbnb they loved going to they had gone there before and when we got there the walls were painted blood red every wall (gasps) and there was a framed poster of russell (laughs) crowe Russell Crowe in the his what was his Roman Empire movie Gladiator um yes yes. and it wasn't just framed it was in that that type of glass that's like lifted like there were five inches of glass and the poster was behind it and there were gladiator swords um also framed around the house and my god (laughs) 
And so when I think of this Roman Empire question, like, yeah, I think Gladiator and 300 have like really yeah. brought something that 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 an Airbnb would decorate their whole home in at the very least. That's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, it's funny because like I would say one of my favorite books of all time was Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, which I read in college and loved. But like, I still don't think about the Roman Empire that often. <laughs> I feel like I think about cake more often than most things. Yeah. Oh my God. Cake and what is cake, which is a conversation we yes, revisited way true. too many times. I'll still think about it. <laughs> uh, did you all see, I saw it on Instagram because I'm not actually on TikTok because I'm too old, but uh, there was an Instagram reel that was like, okay, so if dudes are thinking about the Roman empire so much, what are women thinking about and why is it murder? <laughs> <laughs> And she that was just sense. like, we think about being murdered, but also we think about murdering a lot. And I was like, ooh, I like this very, very much. This, this, <laughs> this feels correct. Right? <laughs> well, Chelsea, Christina, thank you both so much for coming on. This was very fun. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. I had a great time. Right after the break, we will hear from Tanya James about her book, Loot, which is on the long list for the National Book Award this year. The Nerdette Book Club pick Loot by Tanya James is one of the top 10 contenders for this year's National Book Award for Fiction. The National Book Foundation announced the long list just last week. We'll find out who wins in November. But I have to tell you, I am not at all surprised that Loot was chosen because it is historical fiction at its finest. It opens in Mysore, India in the late 1700s, where a young woodcarver named Abbas is summoned to the Sultan's palace to help make a mechanical tiger. After a bloody siege, Abbas escapes to France, and the book is about Abbas and his journey across the sea, but it's also about ambition and colonialism and love and how history is even remembered. I talked to Tanya back in July about the book, and I had to start by sharing with her how completely shocked I was that the tiger in the novel is actually a real thing. It's at a museum in England. Yeah, I had never heard of it until I came across it in a book, hmm. but it is a six foot long wooden tiger that's mauling the throat of an English soldier. And there's, you know, back in the day when it worked, you could turn a hand crank and the tiger would grunt and the soldier would groan. And there was an organ that would play sort of a, you know, soundtrack for this little scene. Um, so it's pretty spectacular. I mean, the symbolism of that alone is just like rife with opportunity. Yeah. One of the things that was interesting to me is that it means different things to different people. Hmm. So to Tipu Sultan, who is this ruler who commissioned it, he hated the British East India Company. So to him, it probably was a symbol of that hatred and that desire hmm. to destroy them. And then eventually it comes into the hands of the British. And for them, it was probably a symbol of Indian savagery. So that's hmm. one of the things that, that I kind of had this sense that this object would be really charged as a as an object in fiction, because it just means such different things to different people. Mm -hmm. Well, and even at the museum, they call it like one of their most famous and intriguing objects, which I just think is so fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely maybe one of their most popular exhibits. That's wild. So as you mentioned, I mean, this tiger is real. Tipu Sultan is real. He was a ruler in Mysore during a really complicated period of history. He had an alliance with the French to keep the British out, but the British did eventually take over the region. They killed Tipu. Um, 
There are a couple of instances in this book, especially when you're describing the siege that happens, where you talk about how the moment ends up being depicted in historical documents versus what it was actually like, which I found very compelling. Thank you. That was sort of my way of making the history interesting to me because Mm. I was reading, I find a lot of historical research, particularly primary sources to be kind of dry and sort of dense and distant. And I, and I just kept thinking like, how do you make historical fiction, like a siege feel like action, like an, like there's movement and the sort of, um, this, this have this sort of like thrilling, kind of dynamism. Um, and I, I, I think one of the ways, one of the, the sort of guiding, you know, uh, rules for me when I was writing scenes like this was I just have to write what matters to the character that I'm writing about. And mm. so I was always sort of trying to keep my eye on the big picture, but also kind of trying to remind the reader that we're really not here to learn about history purely from a kind of authoritative standpoint, we're really looking at history through this very narrow perspective, um, this very um, subjective point of view of this woodcarver who is really seemingly insignificant in the vast scope of history. But for us, he's, you know, he is really, really important. It's so interesting to hear you describe that smaller scope because the word I kept coming up with to describe this book is proximity because Mm -hmm. I do feel like, you know, to your point often, I mean, this book is about a very far away long ago time and place, and it can be really hard to, to become compelled to read something about those topics. But because you're so close to all of these characters, it's just so digestible. It's so fascinating. It's so well-written. Thank you so much. I mean, I think one of the things I care about most in fiction is immersion. Like that's what I want Mm -hmm. as a reader. And that's what I want it to convey as a writer. And so at times I want to be very close to the character that the point of view character I'm writing, I also like jumping around and Mm. giving a sense of, you know, the sort of more marginal figures in, in a historical moment that we might not be paying attention to, but even just a moment of proximity gives us this intimacy that I think history can't give you because that's just not what its aims Mm. are. But Mm -hmm. I think that for me, that is the aim of, of good fiction. So, yeah, you mentioned a boss. He is, a purely fictional character. He did not exist in real life, though. I mean, someone made the tiger. Um, I'm curious how you decided what, when to stick to history and when to deviate. Was it really just because history is often on such a grand scale that you had to become more kind of micro with it? I mainly let delight be my guide. Like when I was having fun, you know, and I wanted, (laughs) I did, I just really, I guess it was a certain point in time. I had, had two kids and had a couple of novels that w- weren't working. And I was just really re-examining what I want to spend my time on. And I really, fun was, and delight and adventure. These were the things that I, I wanted to spend my time on. Not that there aren't heavy subjects in the, in the novel, but Mm-mm. I just, I just wanted to go wherever the fun was. So with Abbas, I mean, at first I found it really challenging because I didn't have any information about who made this, who made Tipu's Tiger. And I knew I wanted to write about the person who made it or the people who made it. And then I just, I just sort of leaned into the, this idea that historical fiction is as much speculation as it, as it is research in history. Mm-hmm. So, you know, finding the fun in that, in that speculative space was really 
uh, gave me a lot of momentum. Mm, I love that so much. So you talk about shifting points of view. Um, that happens several times throughout the book. And everyone who we hear from has some proximity to the tiger, except in the middle section, when a boss is crossing the ocean from India, eventually he gets to France. And we get that from the perspective of a British sailor, and they're essentially diary entries. And I was really fascinated by by how you chose that approach for that section. Mm, I mean, I love epistolary stories, stories mm. told in letters or emails or, you know, part of it, it feels a little bit like a, reading a mystery. It almost feels like the there's a shift in terms of um, the in in this novel where we're not really able to tell always what what the writer of these letters is trying to hide or what they're trying to how they're trying to depict themselves or what you know we don't always understand their or recognize their blind spots or they don't recognize their blind spots and I I just I just love the way um, epistolary to me is a bit more of a mysterious form. And and it was just kind of a fun way to move across time. I, I tried to write it in a more traditional or conventional way, but I found myself once again, like, you know, I was, I got, I got a bit bored and I was like, how do I make this fun for me? And so I, I turning it into these diary entries felt like being introduced to a totally new voice. Um, and it just allowed allowed this other kind of new relationship to flourish between Abbas and the sailor. Um, and so, I mean, it really, it, it, I kind of, I like when novels do that, when at some point they sort of pull the rug out from under you mm-hmm. with the promise that it's going to pay off emotionally, that there's a point to this. Well, I think it works really well in that section, especially because it's such a huge, I mean, he, they're traveling such a vast distance. So it's such a sort of like, transitional time anyway. And then to kind of see a boss who we have seen from such close perspective until then, instead now sort of through the filter of all of this, you know, early 1800s, British racist, colonialist nonsense, I think is really fascinating. That's a good point. I didn't think about this, but you know, until then we've been very close to him is sort of very intimate point of view for the most part. And, and, and I, I kind of felt like, I like in the middle of a novel when I wanted to create some sort of disruption, but it's also a thematic disruption because he's severed from his family. He's severed from everything he knows. Mm -hmm. And so to kind of meet him again, I wanted to suggest that this is a period of great change and transformation. And so I I felt like trying to look at him from an outsider's point of view um, would be an interesting way of depicting that change rather than staying with it with his sort of intimate point of view, if that makes sense. Totally. I think it sort of reminds the reader of when and where we are in some context that a lot of, you know, especially readers who are more familiar with Western history are like, oh yeah, right. It's that, it's that Mm -hmm. timeframe we're working with, you know? Mm -hmm. So did you go to London and see the tiger? I did. That part of the research was super fun. Um, I went to Rouen. The, the, The tiger itself, I felt I felt really humbled by it. I knew how big it was, hmm. but I the feeling of it when you're standing there is it is very humbling. It's um there's something sort of awe-inspiring about it um and mysterious about it still. There's a point in the book where someone describes the artistry of it as crude, I think is the word. Yes. Yes, because the exterior is um sort of 
you know, stylistically in keeping with the sort of um, local carving style. So it's not realistic in the way that, you know, a lot of automatons, which were sort of precursors to robots, they in, they were popular in Europe in the mm-hmm. 1700s, and they looked very, very realistic. Um, and, and I think the, the, the aim of it was to try to replicate what a woman looks like when she's, you know, blowing on a flute or, you know, so mm-hmm. this, I think the aims of this were different. And so it does, it's not a realistic looking tiger. So you talked about how Tipu would have thought of it in one way, especially, you know, he even sort of considered himself a tiger or how the British would consider it another way. I'm curious how you standing in a museum in the year 2020, whatever interpreted it. Mm, I, I think when I was looking at it, I was definitely looking at it in the context of the other pieces in the exhibit. Sure. So it's like a, I don't know, South Indian, you know, art objects. And they're all sort of neutral looking because they're severed from their context. Right. It's, you know, it's like the gown of Tipu Sultan or the sword or the, here's a picture of two, uh, like a shoemaker. They're sort of um, ethnographic in a way. Mm. And this piece even if you don't have a plaque that explains, you know, in detail what, how it came to be, it, you kind of, it kind of arrives with its own commentary. Hmm. And in that way, I have not encountered anything like it in Indian art or South Asian art that, that is really, you know, so boldly critiquing British power. Yeah. And so it, it just seems so unique. And, and I've come to learn that it is actually very unique. Hmm. It is fascinating. So should it be in London? Mm. Well, I I feel complicated mm. feelings about it sure. because I, on the one hand, my immediate answer is, well, no, I mean, it right. should, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful to have it be witnessed by people in India? Um, on the other hand, there are a lot of people of South Asian origin passing through England and who are able to see it too. So I do think there's a quote in the novel um, that is credited to a British Sri Lankan activist. I am Mm -hmm. there because you, I am here because you were there. Yeah. And he's really talking about the story of colonialism as being a story of migration and movement and that it's ongoing. It's still, it's still happening. I, I personally feel like every object has its own context that has to be reckoned with. And, you know, I would love my, my ideal thing would be, you know, somehow if Tipu's tiger could ha- spend, have live a bi-coastal or bi-continental <laughs> life. But, um, but I, I also just feel like at the very least, I don't see this happening anytime soon, but I, at the very least, I would love for museums, yeah. the VNA in particular to, to be a bit more confrontational or a bit more, uh, specific about the context of this object, just in the language that it uses when it, when you know, when describing what's being displayed and how it actually arrived there. That was author Tanya James. Her book Loot was featured as Nerdette's book club selection in July. And of course, you are invited to participate in Nerdette Book Club whenever the heck you want. It's very easy, pretty much. You listen to the spoiler-free author interview, which comes out the first Tuesday of every month. And then you read the book and tell us what you think. And then you come back the last Tuesday of the month to hear the very spoilery discussion. 
In fact, the spoilery discussion of Loot was really fun because it was with two authors as well, Samir Pandya, who wrote Members Only, which was also a book club pick a couple of years ago, and Rebecca Mackay, whose book I Have Some Questions For You was also a book club selection this year. So do it. It's fun. We'd love to have you. And of course, this month's selection is Angie Kim's phenomenal second novel, Happiness Falls. So you could just dive in right now if you want. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman at WBEZ in Chicago and is part of the NPR Network. And Brendan Banizak is our executive producer. We will see you next week.